Hey there, and welcome to In Sickness and In Health, a podcast about chronic illness, disability, medical traumas, and everyday uncomfortable healthcare experiences. My name is Kara Gale. I'm not a doctor or a medical professional. I'm just a person and a patient who really wants to talk about this stuff more. If this is the first time you're listening to the show, welcome. Nothing said on this show should ever be considered medical advice. If you're experiencing a medical issue, please seek qualified medical help. I know the system sucks, but I do wish you a lot of luck. Every person is different, even within disease groups, so none of my guests should ever be regarded as official representatives or spokespersons for their conditions. This episode is a little bit different than all the others because, for one thing, it's our first clip show. In today's special bonus episode, we're celebrating Rare Disease Day. You may or may not have noticed that I've secretly been making a rare disease podcast all along. I'll be talking to many more rare disease patients in episodes to come, but so far I've talked to several people with rare and rarely diagnosed diseases and disorders, as well as people with rare manifestations of more common conditions. Today's episode highlights some of the challenges of living with rare conditions, told as only those who have lived them can. In the show notes, you can find links to the individual episodes these clips are from. You'll be hearing from Kathy, who I talked to in episode 5, Jen, who I talked to in this week's upcoming regular episode, Kirsten, who I talked to in episodes 10 and 14, Alana from episode 2, Sol from episode 20, Lauren from episode 1, Rebecca from episodes 3 and 6, Kay from episode 18, Abby from episode 16, and Sirena from episodes 13 and 17. It's really exciting to be at a point with this show that I can comb back over all of the wonderful conversations that I've had and put together a clip show. You can find resources and more from us at insicknesspod.com and on social media at insicknesspod. If you'd like to email me, you can do so at insicknesspod at gmail.com. And if you could take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review In Sickness and In Health on iTunes, it will help out the show. As someone living with a handful of rare or rarely diagnosed conditions, I have become acutely aware of many of the challenges posed by living with a rare condition. While many of those things are a total bummer, it's also given me the opportunity to dive into the wonderful world of rare disease advocacy, a community bursting at the seams with compassion, brilliance, and creativity. In medical school, doctors are taught a saying that you often hear referenced in conversations about rare or difficult to diagnose conditions. If you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras. This phrase is usually used to steer doctors away from diagnosing rare diseases since their unique and sometimes bizarre presentations are often what stick out in students' minds more than the mundane and more common. The logic behind all this is that rare diseases are rare and therefore extremely unlikely to be what the patient actually has. But rare diseases aren't quite as rare as we'd like to think they are. And many conditions that were once thought to be extremely rare have shown to be more common than previously thought. According to the advocacy group Global Genes, when taken together as a group, one in 10 Americans are living with a rare disease or disorder. They affect an estimated 350 million people worldwide, which would make for the world's third most populous country if we all lived in one place. 
There are approximately 7,000 known rare diseases, but only about 350 of them make up about 80% of all rare disease patients. 95% of rare diseases don't have a single FDA-approved drug to treat them, and rare diseases are responsible for 35% of deaths in the first year of life. While they get very little research funding, studying one rare disease can help us better understand others, as well as more common conditions. If those aren't enough reasons for you to care about rare conditions, many people with more common conditions develop rare complications or manifestations. And as we learn more about how our genes interact with various factors like environment and lifestyle, and more about why some people respond to treatments while others with the same condition don't, it becomes clear that each individual patient has their own uniquely individual health condition. As Peter Saltonstall, the president of the National Organization for Rare Disorders, or NORD, put it, in the long run, every disease will be rare. For example, many people with one chronic illness wind up developing other conditions, some of which are rare and poorly understood. In episode five, Kathy talked about some of the conditions she's had piled on over the years. But those are not fun, and those also didn't appear until about a year or two after the RA diagnosis. You know, so that was not something I always had. Aside from that, I had a breast lump removed, but I really don't know what that has to do with anything, um, except for the fact that it turned out and it just made me laugh. It turned out to be this unbelievably rare, benign tumor. And I'm just like, you know, I'm so sick of hearing the words unbelievably rare. <laughs> I know. <Yeah. laughs> when it comes to my health that, you know, yeah. it was just kind of funny. Again, if there's like something they say, well, this happens once in a while or this, you know, every now and then, I'm going to be the one usually who gets that complication. Right. When you have complicated or unexpected medical issues, people often don't know how to react. Unfortunately, sometimes that even includes medical professionals, and we wind up having to be the ones to make them feel better, like I talked to Jen about in this week's upcoming regular episode. The doctor had left, and like all the nurses like came into the room and were like, oh my god, are you okay? We've never seen anybody's heart beat this fast before. They were freaking out, and I had to be the one to be like, it's okay, Like this happens all the time, I'm not going to die, this isn't a big deal, we just, it'll stop eventually. You know? <laughs> I love that about everything about my health, is that so often it's me comforting other people. Yeah. Like, um, I went to, um, annual, no, I was getting, I was getting my IUD out, but it's neither here nor there. And I was updating my medical history. It was before I was diagnosed with EDS, but after I was diagnosed with hip dysplasia. And I was just telling my doctor, like, what was going on about my surgeries, all that. She started crying. Oh, no. <laughs> and so I had to sit there. My partner was with me, too. And so it was the two of us, like telling this doctor that everything was going to be okay and then later he was like can you believe that that happened and I was like no I can because it happens to me all the time yeah like you know that was an extreme case that she was crying but like having to comfort other people about my health and well-being is a fairly frequent occurrence yeah Explaining rare conditions to people can be complicated, and we often have to find ways to help people better understand them using examples that they're already familiar with. It can also be difficult because for so many of these conditions, we still know so little about them at all, as Kirsten talked about in episode 10. 
it's related to uh-huh. rheumatoid arthritis, it's related to lupus, and so a lot of people will explain it as, well, it's like rupus, like like rheumatoid arthritis and lupus, which isn't exactly true, right. but, you know, sometimes it helps people understand a little bit better, right? because um, they can relate to it. It's also interesting because, so Stills disease, there's, there's really two types of Stills disease. There's adult onset, and that was really only discovered back um, in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And then there's um, juvenile onset, which is more commonly known as um, systemic juvenile arthritis. So, so there's kind of two sides to that coin. And then there's um, been some research lately about whether or not like systemic juvenile arthritis should be included with the other two main types of juvenile idiopathic arthritis, mm-hmm. as it currently is, because systemic is much more auto-inflammatory in nature versus autoimmune. Right. So it's, it's just an interesting kind of mishmash of things. <laughs> yeah. Now, people with Stills disease, do they often get misdiagnosed either with rheumatoid arthritis or with lupus or both? Or Yeah, it's, um, it's hard because it is a a disease where your diagnosis really comes based on excluding other diagnoses. So, and, and because it's rare, um, you know, I don't, I don't have stats on adult onset, but particularly in juvenile onset, it only makes up about 10% of the kids with juvenile idiopathic arthritis, you know, with better research, with better access to materials, these things are being diagnosed more accurately now. of rare diseases affect children. In that same episode, Kirsten talked about the diagnostic limbo she experienced after the onset of her symptoms at age five. Particularly with the juvenile onset type, um, we couldn't figure out what was wrong with me when I was little. At first, they thought it was like a a food allergy or um, like a chemical allergy. And then we went through a host of misdiagnoses up until we got to leukemia. And they were like, okay. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. You have six weeks to live. Oh it's just God. before your sixth birthday. Have fun with that. Wow. So, you know, I was lucky enough that we were able to find out what it was in that time period. But, ooh. And like Alana talked about in regard to her immune deficiency in episode two, rare conditions often get in the way of just being a normal kid. With the primary immune deficiency disease, I just feel like I have to be more careful. Like I have to be a little bit more ahead of the game in flu season. I have to not ride in, you know, crowded transport. I can't, you know, I just have to be more careful. And that was a lot harder in high school because... It was just like every place that you sat and you touched and you walked through was just infection, infection, infection. Being a kid with any medical problems can be scary and distressing, but with rare conditions so often very difficult to diagnose, that process can be really traumatizing, like Sol talked about in episode 20. There was this bump that started to form on my head, the top of my head, uh, behind this birthmark and it started off really small and so no one was particularly worried about it because you know sometimes kids just have weird bumps Um, but it got bigger and bigger and we didn't really know what it was and I got taken to a lot of doctors and a lot of specialists and I remember particularly an incident where I was taken to the basement of a hospital and put in a little tiny room 
Um, and then all these doctors and med students and nurses and experts from all across the country um, paraded through this little room and poked and prodded and looked at my bump with these magnifying glasses. And it was about 100 people who were wow. touching my head that day trying to figure out what this thing was. Because it's, I don't remember what it's called, but it's this rare, obscure thing where it's a bunch of skin and hair cells that were just growing out of control in a tumor. Um, but it's this rare thing that took them a long time to figure out. But then when they figured out what it was, it was like, oh, yeah, that thing. Like, not a big deal. It's not cancerous. Um, the deal with me is that it might, like, it just grows a lot. It grows to be really big, and it might have grown to cover an eye, which would have been, you know, really deforming to live with a giant mass of skin and hair cells that covered part of my face um, and then also it would really affect me for not being able to like see out of one eye um, so I had it removed I don't remember if this was before or after the parade of doctors but like we would come into we came into all these doctors offices and with photos of me from a baby and we'd tell them all about this birthmark and this bump and one of the times we were going through this exercise I was taken in a small exam room away from my parents and they removed a portion of this bump. And I was eight years old when this happened, and they didn't give me any anesthesia oh. or anything to numb the pain locally or throughout my entire body. Um, they just had three nurses holding me down as someone else um, cut into my scalp to remove a, a section of this bump that they could look at under a microscope and help them figure out what it was. Because, um, you know, like I was in this room screaming for their help. And then when they let me out, like they they let me calm down in this room for a little while. When they let me out, my parents were sitting on the other side of the door. And I just remember feeling so betrayed when I was like finally allowed to rejoin them. Because I was like, you were standing out there the entire time. Like, couldn't you hear me? Couldn't you at least come in and hold my hand? Like, what were they doing? What was this for? And it's not just kids that often have a really hard time in the medical system with rare or rarely diagnosed conditions. There are many different factors that can get in the way of getting a diagnosis, and sometimes it seems amazing that anyone gets diagnosed at all. In episode one, Lauren talked about all of the privileges that enabled her diagnosis and how hard it can be to find a doctor who can actually help. I was thinking about and talking to him about, you know, it took me two years and over a hundred doctors to get accurately diagnosed. That's like, that's a crazy number of doctors. Mm -hmm. And I know that had I not been um, in an economic position to be able to do that, had I not had really good insurance, had I not had a family that could take the time off of work to drive me, because I was in no condition to drive myself, um, the ability to travel out of state, you know, these are all things that helped me got diagnosed and it still took two years <laughs> right you know right. and also being a very stubborn headstrong patient I think a lot of people after you've been to 20 doctors and they all tell you you're crazy maybe you're just gonna start believing it I did and yeah. and I was that very obstinate patient that was just like no <laughs> I knew if I kept looking eventually I'd find that needle in the haystack of a doctor who yeah. could help but I didn't have the energy to um, to argue with everyone that was making no sense to me. Oh yeah, it's exhausting. Comes up on the show all the time that the medical system isn't exactly the friendliest or most helpful place for women, people of color, and LGBTQ individuals, which Rebecca talked about a bit in episode six. 
for example, um, you know, when we look at like some of the health providers that target the LGBTQ population here in Philadelphia, a lot of them aren't accessible. <laughs> the, there's an HIV testing clinic that has stairs up to it. The Planned Parenthood has stairs. Um, there's actually currently a support group meeting for queer, chronically ill people, but it's up a flight of stairs. So, like, just basic health care and, like, basic support we're finding. Like, people are just not thinking intersectionally here. Yeah. And then there are, like, some really specific issues that we're seeing in this group. Like, you know, if a trans person with a chronic health condition goes to a doctor, very frequently the doctor will be, are you sure it's not the hormones? Because oh, <laughs> there's been sure. very yeah. little, you know, there's been very little, like, education done, right. very little studies done on, like, the effects of these things, you know. And, like, yes, when you're talking about, like, you know, a trans person with a rare disease, like, that's a very small sample size. Yeah. But at the same time, like, you know, like, these doctors need to be, like, a bit more savvy yeah. Uh. <laughs> well, I mean, even, you know, when dealing with young women, they blame everything on our hormones, you know. Oh, so really? <laughs> if there is a hormone to blame something on, you better believe that's what they're going to go to first with that. Yeah. And I mean, like, I've heard that both for like, you know, trans men on testosterone and trans women on estrogen. Yeah. Like, yeah. And also people who, you know, who don't have any like people who've had you know, hysterectomies, they're like, oh, you know, the lack of hormones is the problem. We better right. give you some hormones. Uh, it's all the hormones. <laughs> and a lot of these problems come back to lack of research and medical education in general and for rare conditions specifically. In episode three, Rebecca also talked about the diagnostic challenges presented by rare conditions and our shared Ehlers-Danlos syndrome diagnosis in particular as a result of not being taught well, if at all, in medical schools. Trying to find experts in these conditions can be extremely challenging. We really become experts in self-management. Yeah. And I'd like to see, you know, more respect for that and more mm -hmm. studying that uh, coming from the medical field. Like, I think that if they listen to patients more. <laughs> what a concept. <laughs> maybe that would be helpful. You know, the literature wouldn't be, you know, like in the case of Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, the literature always seems to be at least like five years behind right. what patients know. Right. And as far as doctors are concerned, they get one, maybe two slides on it in medical school that's like, okay, so here's Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. These are all the types. Here's some symptoms that are associated with it. And it just groups them all together. Yep. And then they move <laughs> on to something else, you know. So I hear constantly from other people who are kind of exploring the diagnosis. My doctor told me that I couldn't possibly have EDS because my skin isn't stretchy enough. Yeah. From different people with different doctors. Oh, that, yeah, because doctors learn in medical school, like <laughs> Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome equals extremely stretchy skin. And that's the thing that sticks out in their mind, and that's what they remember. So when a patient presents with what actually are the symptoms of Ehlers-Danlos <laughs> Syndrome, which I'm not saying that stretchy skin isn't. Obviously, it is specifically associated with the classical type. But, you know, most of us have the hypermobile type. So if they're presenting with all of the other symptoms and you tell them they can't possibly have it because they don't have stretchy skin, it's such a disservice because then that sends that person back out into the world still wondering what the hell is wrong with me you know yeah i mean i think also like there's a tendency for you know whoever picks the photos that go in medical textbooks oh, yeah. 
you know, like, let's find the most extreme case, exactly. you know, and this is a spectrum disorder. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. some of us are mildly hypermobile, some of us are extremely hypermobile. But like, actually, hypermobility doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the severity of the complications you're going right. to experience. Like, I mean, it, it, it does for joints. But someone who's, you know, whose joints are only, you know, very mildly hypermobile could still have, you know, one of the associated problems like, you know, Chiari malformation right. or, you know, an aortic aneurysm. Or even POTS, which can be extremely disabling. Yeah. And I actually, I heard from a POTS doctor, you know, he had, or, you know, nominally a POTS expert who I saw when I was initially, you know, diagnosed with POTS because... You know, the people who diagnosed me couldn't, you know, couldn't tell me anything about treating it because they didn't know anything about treating it. Um, <laughs> so I went to this guy and, you know, I rode like, you know, several hours in the car, which was very uncomfortable. And then waited a really long time in his waiting room, which was also really uncomfortable. So anyway, so, you know, what this, you know, supposed POTS expert, you know, does is he comes in and he starts... Uh, trying to evaluate me for hypermobility. But, you know, and I'm like, uh, well, you know, I prefer not to hyperextend my joints. Uh, my other doctors have told me not to. Figured the only reason he'd be doing it would be if he, like, you know, actually was doubting the validity of my EDS diagnosis. Mm-hmm. But so, anyway, I'm like, why are you doing this? And he's like, well, you know, something about severity of hypermobility correlates with severity of POTS. That's not true. No, that's not. That's definitely not true. And if, like, these are the doctors who are, you know, presenting themselves as the expert in the condition, I'm really, really worried about... Yeah, Yeah, I hear that a lot from a lot of people who are seeing quote-unquote experts who are clearly not... Like, who who said you were an expert? You? (laughs) Yeah. For many with rare conditions, people wind up having to diagnose themselves because so many doctors wind up missing or dismissing them. In episode 18, I talked to Kay about that and the dual reality of self-diagnosis. Another related topic that I've been thinking about a lot recently, and that's the phenomenon of self-diagnosis. Mm. Because that is, I it, there's a lot there, and I, we certainly can't talk about all of it, but we have this sort of dual reality. Mm-hmm. For most of us, particularly in our community, because it is very poorly known, with a but the with a very active patient community, mm-hmm. which means that um, once you stumble into the community, other people are very supportive and give a lot of information, and we're in a unique place where we have to self-diagnose mm-hmm. and we have to be extremely proactive about mm-hmm. the everything know, everything. But the flip side of that is fraudulent Mm self-diagnosis and or mistaken Mm self-diagnosis. And there's there's several variants. It's part of guiding, you know, yourself, your doctor, what have you, to the diagnosis you've already decided on. Mm -hmm. And I don't have a good answer because I'm... One, because it is this this intense dichotomy of if I had just accepted what doctors said. So I think about that is terrifying to me. Yeah. I, I would be even sicker than I am now. Yeah. So I have this very mixed feeling where it's just like this tremendous balancing act of getting the care you need and ensuring you get the care you need by doing your own research because the doctors won't. Right. As if managing the condition like wasn't enough to deal with, you also have to manage the doctors. Yeah. But the flip side is this, there is risk 
And I know it can go wrong in good faith when the patient thinks they found the answer Mm -hmm. and is wrong. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, there's the very real phenomenon of the patient has found the answer and the doctor won't honor that because they go, oh, well, you just looked it up on Google, ergo, there's no reason for me to listen to you. You know, on one hand, you're fighting for what you need. On the other hand, you're managing their biases. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, like, there is something there of, like, I do have concerns about believing you have the right answer Mm -hmm. and guiding your doctor along the path only to have it not be the answer. And as Abby talked about in episode 19, self-diagnosis can actually be a lifesaver. She learned that for herself while dealing with a rare manifestation of endometriosis, a reproductive health condition that affects one in 10 people of menstruating age, but often poses many of the same challenges as rare diseases. I went back to a general surgeon that I had seen because at first they thought maybe I had like, um, like an intestinal parasite or something. Mm -hmm. And so they had referred me, but he said, well, before I do anything, I want to give you a course of antibiotics. And then I like never saw him again. That was like, I was going through this phase where doctors were referring me for like having to just do all this weird shit that they asked me to do, even though none of it had anything to do with what my issue was. And, you know, so I got, you know, I, I got away from from his office, like, because I just kept getting referred to all these other things because surgery was such a, you know, like, like, oh, we're only going to do it if we have to kind of thing. Right. Um but I went back to him and I said, look, here's my, here's my thing. I've, got, I've done the research. I've suffered through this for like four and a half years. Um, I'm really sick and I'm really afraid that, you know, whatever's, whatever's going on here is either going to do permanent damage to my body or it's going to kill me or something. Like, you know, it can't be nothing. It just can't be. And I had said, you know, I think that I know that there's some endometriosis somewhere in there. But I haven't had it properly looked at. I haven't had it visualized for like four years. So it could be worse. I don't know. I was so convinced. And I had all this research and I had made like graphs and I was referencing like all of these academic studies. And I just remember I was sitting in his office and he looked at me and he goes, you're either brilliant or you are the most educated hypochondriac I have ever met. And I said, and you can prove it. You can prove either way. If you go in and do this, you're either going to find something or you're not. And if you're going to go in there, I think at this point, it's probably valid enough for you to just take my appendix out prophylactically because then I'll have to shut up about it. If you don't think that there's something actually wrong with it, you know, this is like a chance for you to say, I've done everything I can do and I can't treat you anymore. And he bought that. He was like, you know, that's true. He's like, if I do it, then... If I find nothing, then I'm done. I can't, you know, there's nothing else I can do for you, but I can say I did everything I could, you know, that kind of thing. And as, as kind of like hard as that was to stomach, it, it was definitely like I spoke to his sensibilities as a surgeon. And so I just remember waking up in recovery and I was coming to and realizing this. And I looked at the nurse in recovery and I said, you know, what did they take out? And she said, well, you were right. You know, you were actually right down to the very specific rare thing that was wrong. Like that was like, you, you completely were right. And I was like, I didn't even really care at that point that I was, I was just really relieved. And the outcome was that he had never seen this before. He said, he said, I've never seen this before. I've never read about this before. So I have no idea what your long-term digestive health is going to be like. He's like, you know, this this might solve some issues there or it might not. Um, and you've got a whole other like concurrent inflammatory process. So I really have no idea. 
But, you know, he said, I've done my job, so good luck figuring it out. I was like, oh my god, okay. Um, although I do remember him saying at my follow-up appointment that he kind of was tempted to write a study about it, like do a study. And I was like, well, excuse me, but I was the one who did all the research here. So I would have to be co-author on that study. And he was kind of like, Rah. but, you know, because I, I had brought this all to his attention. And he just confirmed it because, you know, if I could have done the operation on myself, I probably would have. <laughs> Sometimes there's a bit of pride and curiosity that comes with being rare, especially if you can appreciate the science of it, like Sirena talked about in episode 17 with regard to the rare spinal stroke she experienced. You know, they didn't know it was wrong. So here I am. I'm on, you know, doing like searching for clinical research articles about what it could be while they're trying to figure it out. And I had like three MRIs and a CT and I'm just, now I'm not feeling sick. I'm just in pain. And they gave me morphine. So once they put that in, I was fine, <laughs> at least for a little while. Did you like try and get up and walk out and be like, I'm, I'm fine. Everything's fine. We can leave now. I honestly thought I was going to go home. Oh. I thought I was going to go home. I couldn't walk. I couldn't move my left hand, but I thought I was going home that day. I ended up having a spinal cord stroke, which is really crazy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I remember I was in the hospital reading all this stuff, and, um, you know, it's like 1% of all strokes every year are spinal cord strokes. So a lot of doctors have never seen one and will never see one. Yeah. And so when I was in the hospital, I was like a hot ticket, like everybody to see me. <laughs> They're like, what is this? This is, you know, it's kind of like that. Like, this is awesome. Well, that does it for this special Rare Disease Day bonus episode from In Sickness and In Health. Check out all of our other episodes and resources at insicknesspod.com. There, you can also sign up for our mailing list so you'll never miss an episode. Or you can subscribe on iTunes and rate and review us, which helps other people find the show. You can follow us on social media at InSicknessPod and reach me by email at InSicknessPod at gmail.com. Stay tuned for more to come from us, including various other interviews with more rare disease patients. We'll be back on Wednesday with our regularly scheduled episode. And don't forget to be excellent to yourselves and each other. <laughs>